beginning in chapter 15, verse 42, reading all the way into chapter 16, verse 8. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified? He has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. God bless our understanding. The reading of this, his holy word. Amen. The last time I formally spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a few weeks ago when I was involved in a service at the Salt Lake City Buddhist Temple downtown. Why was I leading and speaking at a service at the Buddhist Temple downtown? Well, that Saturday morning, a colleague and a pastor friend of mine called, and he had lost his voice. And that night, he was to share in leadership in a funeral service at the Buddhist temple downtown, and he asked if I could fill in. Why was a Christian pastor part of a funeral service at the Buddhist temple? It was a funeral for a 14-year-old boy. It was an intense evening. His parents had divorced, and the mother was a member of that Buddhist temple. The father was a Christian and wanted a Christian representation at his son's service. And uh, he had a loose affiliation with the church of my friend, pastoral colleague, and so he called him to participate. When I was called, and I took that call, for just about a quarter of a second, I had to stop and ask myself, well, can you do that? And then a quarter of a second later, I said, well, yes, of course. So I went. Um, I was welcomed by the 
priest of the Buddhist congregation. His name is Jerry Hirano, who could not have been more welcoming. He couldn't have been more accommodating. Uh, a very gracious man. Opened the service to me and to that Christian representation. He even chose that we would sing Amazing Grace during that service. It was a large service, many people. Uh, obviously deeply emotional. Um, probably a couple of hundred people. I would say many teenagers there, obviously friends of this young boy. When the time came for me to get up and speak, I spoke of grace. I spoke of Christ's power over death and the hope and the life that he gives us. As I was doing it, it struck me, boy, this is a strange place to be proclaiming the gospel in a Buddhist place of worship, and you know, which was probably filled that evening with people of all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of faiths. And I thought, well, this is different. But then I thought, Well, why not? Why not? Is he not Lord of the universe? Jesus Christ is not just Lord of inside the walls of Christian churches. He is Lord of all. He is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead, it says in Acts. The one whom death no longer has dominion over and who lives to God, it says in Romans who Paul said has been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, those first witnesses to Jesus being alive and those first believers, they didn't preach or proclaim the message inside Christian churches because they didn't have any. They went wherever they could go, to synagogues, to marketplaces, to public squares, to homes, to the streets. They shared this before governors. They would proclaim it before religious leaders and other philosophies of other faiths. They spoke the good news wherever they could and to whoever they could because it was for all people. It was for all the world. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't you speak it there? You know, you have to be dead before you're raised. That's just, uh, I don't know, forensics 101. You have to be dead before you're raised. And so it is important to read the account of Jesus' burial along with the resurrection. Mark tells us Jesus' body was dead. It's confirmed by a number of people, and so his body is buried and sealed in a tomb. We need to know this because one of the arguments that immediately began against Jesus' resurrection and that was that he really wasn't dead. I think that would have been news to Joseph of Arimathea and to Pilate and to the centurion and to the Roman government and to Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Jesus' burial is part of the gospel story. And two of the women hang around and they know exactly where he's buried, where the tomb is. Now, that isn't necessarily true today. There are two places where people today think Jesus' tomb might have been, where he rose from the dead. One is the garden tomb, which is just outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. It was just recently discovered in the 1800s. It's relatively recent. And we learn from the gospel accounts that the tomb was not far from a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. That's where Jesus was crucified, and this tomb is very close to a rock formation that is near a large rock that looks like a skull. Interestingly, 
what some think could have been Golgotha is now an Arab bus station and sits and it sits underneath a cemetery for Islamic jihadists. But the garden tomb is beautiful and it's very well kept and it's a wonderful place to worship and pray. It's owned and maintained by a group based in Britain. Now the other, the older and more visited place perhaps of Jesus' tomb, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is inside the old city of Jerusalem. The Holy Sepulchre, or what some think was the tomb, sits in an open area in the middle, surrounded by various rooms and chapels of various traditions. Now, unlike the garden tomb, this sepulchre, as you can see, is enclosed in a building and encased in a structure built, uh, I think, by the Greek Orthodox Church, who has primary rights over this particular part of this building. Pilgrims from all over the world pour into this building, which is really a conglomeration of a bunch of different church buildings owned by various Christian traditions, Syrian Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, uh, the Franciscans, maybe a couple of others. When we were in Jerusalem this past summer, we had the unique experience, Nancy and I, of spending the night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which you can do if you make special arrangements. Uh, Nancy and I were two of, I think it was seven people in the building all night, besides the monks and the priests who live in some of the quarters and who are there all the time. But when you spend the night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you are not allowed to sleep. That's the deal. You are up for the night because you are there to pray, to watch, to keep vigil. And you are there until the doors are unlocked at 5 o'clock. Because at 9 o'clock, the doors are shut. You are there till 5 a.m. And don't sleep. It was a rich experience. Uh, I wrote a little bit about it on the blog that I kept. Some of you have seen that. You can still go back and read about it. You're allowed to go into the sepulcher to pray and worship until midnight uh, when the various Christian communities who live in the building begin to worship and perform liturgies throughout the night. And that happens every night, by the way. Uh, Of course, we spent some time in the sepulcher itself, but we spent most of our time around the various chapels and the courts and the rest of the church. And as I sat outside the holy sepulcher on a stone bench, uh, leaning on a wall, which was a wall leading to the Greek chapel just across the way on the other side, I read the gospel accounts of the resurrection and I reflected. And I reflected on that morning and the words of Scripture and what they said. Did I feel a particular closeness to the risen Lord in that moment while I was there? Uh, Was I overwhelmed by the power of his resurrection? Did I just sense, oh, he is alive right here? No, I can't say I was. I certainly felt focused on the event of Christ's resurrection. But what I kept thinking and what I kept hearing right outside that sepulcher as I thought about the strange, terrifying events on that Sabbath morning 2,000 years ago was the words that the woman, the women who went to the tomb heard that morning. He is not here. He has been raised. He's been raised. He's not here. He's not here. You know, it doesn't matter where actually the resurrection took place. Perhaps we'll never know for sure, and maybe that's the way God wants it. But what is important is why Jesus died and why he rose. When the women go to the tomb early that morning, they talk amongst themselves on the way about how they're going to remove that stone that has sealed the tomb. 
But when they arrive, they found it's already been removed. They're told by a young man that Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified, one final uh, confirmation that he's dead. He's been raised. He's not there. And he invites the women to see where his body had been laid, where it should be, but it's not there anymore. It will take faith to believe the resurrection. But not without being invited to fully see and observe and to question. Because, sure enough, faith isn't faith if everything can be measured, if everything can be seen. But that doesn't mean faith isn't without evidence or good reason. The women are told to go and tell Jesus' disciples and Peter. Did you pick that up? Peter gets special mention. Here is grace, folks. Because Peter, remember, he's the one who denied knowing Jesus. He's the one who let him down. And the last time we saw Peter, he was a broken man, weeping and crying out of the shame and guilt he felt for not being faithful to his Lord. And go tell Peter. Well, I don't know. When I let people down, when I disappoint them, sometimes they don't forgive me. They don't want to ever see me again, and I feel that. But Jesus said, I want to see Peter too. There's grace at the tomb. There's grace at the tomb. And those who've tried to follow, those who've been loyal to Jesus and failed, are offered restoration. And let all the Peters here this morning among us take heart. Amen? Well, the young man in that tomb tells the women to go tell the disciples and Peter that they are to go to Galilee. Don't stay there. Go to Galilee and you will see Jesus alive just as he previously told them. And then it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Is that any way to end a gospel? The primary witnesses are traumatized and afraid. And they don't even carry out what they were told to do. They flee. They just get out of there. And that's what Mark gives us. But the ending is even more peculiar. Literally, in the original Greek language it was written, it's an incomplete sentence. It ends like this. The women were afraid for... For what? And this has puzzled and bothered people ever since. Why would Mark end his story this way? And some people thought, well, the original ending was torn off. Or it was never recovered. Or or others say, well, you know, maybe Mark was arrested. Or maybe he died before he had a chance to finish his gospel and he was never fully able to complete it. And then some, apparently, felt the need to complete Mark's gospel for him. And you should have in your Bibles some footnotes, a little footnote or maybe some words in italics that say verses 9 through 20 in Mark chapter 16 is probably not necessarily part of Mark's original writing. These verses aren't in the oldest, best copies and manuscripts we have of Mark's gospel. And other Christian preachers and writers from the earliest centuries didn't seem to know of these words and these verses. And they don't show up until copies of Mark many years later. The section was probably added by those who wanted to clean the whole thing up. And additions have been made to additions. 
They have the women going out and telling as they were commanded, not holding up in fear. And verses 9 through 20 have echoes of other parts of gospel accounts. But this section has some parts that, you know, the reason their authenticity is doubted is because it's things like Jesus, you know, reaming out his disciples for not believing in him. Uh, Jesus talking about handling snakes. And then some of the language, the writing, it's just clearly of another writer, another time, doesn't fit with the rest of the style of the gospel. One of the things that shows, I think this shows, is that many scholars who have worked on the translation of the Bible over the centuries have always done so with integrity and honesty. They tell us where the problems, where the questions are. They're not, this isn't writing stories and fairy tales. These are the authentic accounts, eyewitness accounts of things that happened, and they have tried to be faithful to the accounts as they really happened. There is an accountability and a transparency in the history and the writing and the translation of the Holy Scripture. And that explains why there's that longer ending in our Bible in Mark. But can we just accept the ending at verse 8? Now, we know the women did go and tell. We, we get it in the other Gospels. Obviously, someone went, to, we're here this morning. Someone let it out, didn't they? Someone said, hey, we've got to tell you what happened. But being overcome by trembling and bewilderment, what some Bibles say, they were seized with amazement. They were seized with trauma. And being afraid are really what we might expect because it was a terrifying noise. Dead bodies aren't supposed to move. And large stones of ancient tombs didn't just move away. And then unknown figures who hang out in tombs saying that someone who was seen and confirmed dead will be seen alive and wants to meet up with the followers always tends to give people the willies. Wouldn't it be, really be believable if the women see and hear this word that Jesus had been raised and then they received it with calm and composure? I don't think so. And the woman said to one another, you know, something like this, well, of course, we were prepared for this and we completely understand. And we totally understood that Jesus said this would happen. This happens all the time. So let us go and spread the good news so churches may start everywhere and they may have breakfasts and all may know that Jesus is alive. That's a lot harder for me to buy than that they were completely undone with fear. Well, what do we do with this ending? Yes, Matthew and Luke and John, they give us more. But let's just take Mark on Mark's terms. Let's not try to smooth it out. The women flee the scene. They don't tell anyone and they're afraid and they're terrified for. And there are all kinds of takes on what to do with this. On the one hand, I think Mark is saying this. I think he's saying, look, this was a frightening thing. Yes, peace and courage and confidence, it came later. But if I can just take you to that garden and that tomb on that first morning, it was a honey. Those women were traumatized. Darnier sent them into shock and a therapy bill that would fix them for the rest of their lives. They almost never got over it. Even Matthew in his gospel said, and some doubted when they saw him, some doubted just almost too big to believe. You know, think of a traumatic event in our own lives. When you first got that phone call or the news, your spouse died, your child. When you heard the president was shot, 9-11. Remember the fear? Remember the trauma? Remember the questions? 
Remember the uncertainty? The almost, you can't even make sense of it. You don't even know what to think. You don't even know what to do. Mark is telling us about the appropriate terror of the empty tomb. But he might be doing even more. One secular critic, not a Christian, not a religious person, one secular critic of literature said this, either Mark wrote a very clumsy ending or he's being very subtle. And some have suggested that Mark intentionally left the story without a proper ending as if to ask us, here is what happened. Now what are you going to do about it? Finish it with your life. Never mind the women. What about you? Who will tell the story? Who will say Jesus has been raised and he's alive? How will it touch your life? What difference is it going to make for you? You know, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't make anyone a disciple and it doesn't make anyone a Christian. You have to respond. You have to follow. You you have to live with it and you have to live with him. You have to go and proclaim with the words and the actions of our lives. And we have to live like we are under the rule of someone else who is much greater than any power or authority in this world. And the message is not, well, he has been raised and now life has come. The message is not, he has been raised and now we'll live forever in heaven. As true as those things may be, that's not the message. The message is he has been raised and he's not here. He's on the move. Go and tell others. There's something to be done. There's a mission to do. In 2 Corinthians, it says this, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Who? What? Will you? Do you? Live for? Something has happened that has changed the world. God has acted And it's not just for Christians and just those in the church. It is a claim on all nations and all peoples. He is Lord of all. And if they call you tonight to come down to the Buddhist temple in Salt Lake City or anywhere else for that matter to speak a word, and this is what you know to be true, then by all means, get yourself down there and proclaim it. Yeah, some will scoff. Yes, some will ridicule. Yes, some will believe. Some will disbelieve. We find all those reactions in the Bible when the disciples in the early church go out and speak it. And that's been true ever since. But Christ has been raised. And that probably won't make a difference for us until we come face to face with the terror of the whole event. And when we do that, we will come to understand what kind of a God we are dealing with. A God who is over death. A God who is bringing a new creation and involves us in that. A God who, by doing this, can certainly do some powerful things in our lives. A God who is big enough to worship and give our lives to. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious and death-conquering God. What will we do with this? Renew our hearts again. Renew our hearts in that message of victory over death, of Christ alive, of hope and wonder. And send a little of that resurrection trauma into our lives and awaken us to you. 
Give us all the grace we need to take our stand on Jesus Christ, risen and alive. Thank you for all we've heard, all we've shared in this morning. And send us from here with the life of Jesus flowing through us and from our hearts. It's in his mighty, glorious, and exalted name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.